to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Hilfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. This episode is sponsored by Mohawk Fine Papers. In a technological era punctuated with email, smartphones, tablets, and texts, Mohawk believes strongly in the power of paper and print to make a high-impact, lasting impression. Mohawk has been crafting beautiful papers in upstate New York since 1931. So for centuries, when people wanted to share information, they usually needed paper. But that's really changing in the information age. Uh, There was a recent article in Aeon in which the economist John Quiggin talks about how in 2013, the world reached peak paper and global production and consumption of paper has started to decline. Now, peak paper in the sense of peak oil or peak resources. But still, paper has advantages over computers and hard drives, especially when it comes to storing information for a long time. And this is an interesting thing in the information age, that we would look at paper as a repository of information against what is a kind of like endless amount of real estate uh, online in terms of accessing anything you want at the hit of a button. But I think designers, designers more than anybody, uh, we really understand and I think recognize and appreciate the value of beautiful paper. Would you agree, Michael? Yeah, I remember uh, years ago, I was uh, doing a panel with the late Tibor Coleman, who at that point was the editor of, he was the founding editor of a magazine that Benetton sponsored called Colors, which still publishes today. And he was really enthusiastic about it. It was his dream job. And it was uh, his version of what he really wanted to do was to be the editor of Life magazine. So he was editing this magazine. Someone in the audience asked him whether or not he was interested in doing an online version of it. This was an early enough time where it was plausible to say no to that question, by the way. These days, I don't think it would be that plausible. But he said that was not a priority. He said he'd rather do a edition in Chinese or an edition in Sanskrit or an edition in more languages to get it more available and more continents. He was interested in uh, distribution and dissemination and saw paper as then the most efficient way of doing that. And as you say, kind of the most lasting way of doing it. There are people that still have copies of, of that magazine around. And if you find one, it's like electrifying. The physicality of it is still so striking if you find one of the first 10 that he was the editor of. But that's the whole thing, the finding of the original thing. You know, we could say that it's fetishized and we want to own things, that this is a function of conspicuous consumption in general and designer desire uh, in, in particular. But I think, you know, if you look at something that is on paper, that's printed on paper, there's something just remarkably powerful about that experience. And, and apropos, there is this exhibit that opened recently at the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, that was put together by Ricky Jay, the, uh, the sleight of hand genius, wonderful magician uh, who has... Uh, and, and actor and, and performer. Actor and and, performer and, and collector. Brilliant And a really guy. serious collector. And for many, many years, uh, he has been interested in in a man named Matthias Buchinger. Buchinger was, in fact, his um, his secret email for many years. Nobody knew who Buchinger was. Who was Buchinger? He was a 17th century uh, polymath. He was a draftsman. He was a calligrapher. He was a magician and a musician who traveled and entertained kings and aristocrats, but he also married four times and fathered 14 children. None of this might interest you until you realize that this man was born without hands or legs. And was less than 30 inches 
inches tall. Right, he was 29 inches tall. He lived to the ripe old age of, I think, 65 or so. And he was an incredible draftsman and calligrapher. And the things that he made are just remarkable. And this is what's on exhibit at the Met. So, I mean, in terms of what you could do on paper and what people who you would think would not be able to do anything, period, this man was a masterful contributor to the history of ephemera by making these things that many of them with a magnifying glass. Yeah, no, his, um, what's remarkable about him, and if you, and I, I was lucky enough to see this exhibit, and if you have a chance to run to go see it. It's just remarkable if you care about design, if you care about craftsmanship, if you care about paper. This is just astonishing. Uh, his real feat, uh, in addition to his uh, 14 children and his, uh, what was rumored to be 70, that's seven zero mistresses with whom he may have had more children still, was his ability to do this micro calligraphy. For instance, one of the things is a, uh, is a self-portrait that's so detailed that if you look at it with a magnifying glass, if you look at the curls of his hair, they contain seven psalms from the Bible and the Lord's Prayer, all in miniature letters that are all just beautifully intertwined. And I have to admit, it is, it's it's no surprise that uh, Ricky Jay, himself a magician and a magician who specialized in doing sleight of hand and card tricks, was just so fascinated with this, you know, character, uh, so-called the greatest German living. Uh, the fact that these documents exist, it's like seeing him do the tricks before your eyes. One of the things that I found interesting in, in looking at the work, I mean, it's just so beautifully executed. Uh, he signed everything with uh, his name and then wrote born without hands or feet. So, you know, in case you were ever going to forget this, you, you, you're, of course, meant to remember it when you see this, the tenacity and the capacity to be able to execute things so small. And it's not clear he used a magnifying glass. And if he did, where did he put it and how did he use it? I mean, this is so it's a use of, of paper and of penmanship and of, of what at the time would have been the kind of thing that people uh, cared about. The Lord's Prayer, for example, things that had to do with history, family trees. He excelled at doing the sort of very uh, careful constructed structural diagrams of information. He was sort of an early information architect in that sense. There is, by the way, you mentioned the show is at the Met. I just wanted to add that uh, there will, there's a beautiful catalog that was published by Celio that um, you can you can get, and we'll put a link to it on our site. Uh, but the work is really incredible, and and. Um, uh, information about Bukinger is, is what uh, has come to us by virtue of the sleight of hand of Ricky Jay, who uh, just cannot get enough of this stuff, and, and frankly, neither can most of us. Yeah, and um, and the fact that, again, it's on paper, talking about paper, the paper is the proof of it. You know, it's like one thing to kind of hear these claims, but it's another thing to stand at the Met in front of one of these uh, pieces and see it as he did it at the time, and it just is um, flabbergasting. And of course, the, the comical thing is, is that um, the question that Ricky Jake has always asked is, well, like, you know, if he had no hands or feet, how did he do it? And of course, um, you know, how is the trick done is the quintessential question that's always put to any magician and the thing that, that they take such pleasure in concealing, right? So uh, so there's a kind of magic to this that's just so mesmerizing. I mean, the man was obviously a prolific maker. He was also a pretty prodigious in the parenting department. And it does make you wonder about that one part of his anatomy that seemed to be an excellent working order, whether there wasn't some, I don't know, is there some connection between that and, and, and just like capacious calligraphy? I have no idea, but I think the, um, 
But I think, you know, one thing's for sure is that um, today we live in this age of celebrity, and I think we are constantly bemoaning the fact that um, personal brands and personal celebrity has taken over the world, and we behave as if it's uh, completely unique to our era. And yet, clearly, um, among all his other, you know, amazing attributes, uh, uh, the little man of Nuremberg really cultivated his own brand with absolute relentlessness, you know, and the fact that we know so much about him today is all due to the fact that he was a relentless self-promoter and uh, uh, was not only talented, but just uh, as talented people today feel it's incumbent on them to do so, he made sure the world knew it and how. It's also uh, funny to think that if he were doing this now, how would that become amplified to the world if not through social media? And the difference between amplifying your brand through social media and creating some sustained uh, body of work that lives on through the paper it's printed on is, I think, where the sort of nexus is between these two worlds. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me that some new thing will become available a video, something on Vimeo, uh, something in the news, something on the campaign trail, something in Europe, something about the refugees. It goes into your feed. It drops down to the bottom of your feed. It's supplanted by something else. And I think the great difference here is that paper is, you know, it's not forever. And, and certainly this is a form of ephemera, these, these things that could easily have become destroyed over the last several hundred years. But collecting, which is something that I think many designers share, you, you Michael, are the unusual one who does not, but you certainly appreciate and, and love and support those of us who do collect things, that there's something about actually finding uh, an archive and supporting it and protecting it and getting it to a museum where others can see it, sharing it with the public in that way. That's a really, uh, I think, vital part of visual culture that I hope uh, becomes preserved always. It's really by virtue of collectors like Ricky Jay that the rest of us are able to see this remarkable work as opposed to letting it slide down the rabbit hole of the, of the social media feed, which you know really makes you wonder about the posterity of visual material as it exists today when it's shared just through the, through our screens. Yeah, well, this is, uh, he lived, you know, uh, 300 so years ago, and you wonder what evidence of any internet sensation would exist 300 years from now and in what form. You know, uh, you take um, Beyonce dropping, uh, you know, her song and video for the song uh, Formation, which I think was like a, a brilliant coup and corresponded with halftime at the Super Bowl. And it's actually uh, the song itself and the video for it are both remarkable works of art, in my opinion. And they took full and relentless advantage of every aspect of social media and the way we communicate today. Yet, those things get supplanted so quickly. And, uh, you know, they if something has a staying power to make it to the following week, you sort of think, well, this really, you know, is maybe an enduring uh, um, achievement. You know, a few weeks is like one thing, but like 300 years. I, I just wonder, you know, what the means of collecting, the means of um, preserving these sort of things are going to be so that someone 300 years from now could actually get an accurate picture of what the early 21st century looked like. Well, not to, uh, not to overly indulge my love of alliteration, but I did find myself wondering, as you were saying that, Michael, what, what's going to happen if, you know, Beyonce starts blogging about Buchinger. <laughs> How about this conversation? Always stay gracious. Best revenge is your paper. And now a word from our sponsor. Support for the Observatory and Design Observer comes from Mohawk Fine Papers. 
1946, a team of innovative papermakers redefined quality for an entire industry with the creation of Mohawk Superfine. Superfine has been manufactured with enormous care and pride at Mohawk's upstate New York paper mills for 70 years and is celebrated for its quality, consistency, uniformity, and perfect printing surface. Mohawk invites you to join the 70th anniversary celebration of Superfine by sharing details about your favorite Superfine projects via Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag DearSuperfine. Visit MohawkConnects.com for more information or to obtain a Superfine swatch book. Just speaking personally, um, this is a sponsor that I really love. It's my favorite paper in the world, Mohawk Superfine. I just love it. Um, my personal stationery is on it. Our firm stationery is on it. It just is like the nice paper. It's a nice paper and it's always been seen as kind of the quintessential nice paper. And uh, there's a wonderful video on the Mohawk site. I don't know, Michael, I know that you've worked with him for years. Perhaps you had a hand in this beautiful video in which many people are interviewed, including, speaking of sponsors, our friends at Blurb, Jess Walker and uh, Kent Hall are interviewed. But they talk about the origins of Superman. And I didn't know this, that uh, somebody once in the early days of his invention remarked casually that the paper was super fine and the name stuck. <laughs> this is what you said in back in the day. It was super fine. Not just fine. Not just fine, super but super fine. fine. So the name just super stuck. Fine. But it has a wonderful history here at Yale University where uh, it was originally used and came into being um, by virtue of a relationship that Mohawk had with Alvin Eisenman. And Alvin Eisenman was, for many years, he was the founding director of the graphic design program at Yale in the School of Art. He founded it in 1950. He's the one who uh, was invited, actually, to do this by Joseph Albers. Uh, and for many, many years, until 1990, he ran the program here. And in those very early days, he worked closely with Yale University Press. And the evolution of Superfine came about uh, because Eisenman wanted something to use that was very special to print uh, an edition of the papers of Benjamin Franklin. So it has this lovely cultural history and connection to Yale, where it has remained not only uh, the favorite paper of the university, but all of the graduate students in the School of Art who since those early uh, years of Alvin's um, uh, reign, uh, every year, as many graduate students do, have to do a thesis. And the thesis is a book. It's the sort of catalog raisonné of a body of work that they execute meticulously and diligently over the course of two years, sometimes three years. And uh, I would say the lion's share of those books over time have been printed on Superfine. And I think this is not insignificant. So as, as you say, Michael, not for nothing, we should pay homage to all of those students who for so many years have made their books using this remarkable paper. The paper, I think also uh, unusually, and, and it bears saying, works beautifully in letterpress, works beautiful with offset lithography, and has really been uh, customized now to just provide the most excellent surface for digital printing. So all of those students representing many, many generations of graphic designers looking to provide uh, the perfect canvas for their work have found in Superfine really the, the ideal product. Uh, recently, we lost the Italian writer Umberto Eco, who died at the age of 84. His most famous novel, The Name of the Rose, is a medieval mystery with a solution that you might say is bound up in paper. Eco was many things. He was a philosopher who studied semiotics, the meaning of signs and symbols, and he wrote about everything from Plato 
to pornography. Um, his books are fantastic, and uh, one of his, I think, lesser-known books is one of my favorites. It's a essay collection called um, How to Travel with a Salmon and Other Essays. And um, I have a book with a title that's similar for good reason, because I basically stole it from uh, Umberto Eco. Uh, my book, which is called how to use graphic design to sell things, explain things, make things look better, make people laugh, make people cry, and every once in a while change the world. Um, and every chapter in my book starts with the words how to is um, a direct ripoff of this little book of essays by Echo. It's, uh, it, was a, it was a regular column he wrote, uh, and it was meant to sort of be like a self-help column, and the uh, uh, topics would include um, you know, how to replace a driver's license, how to be a TV host, how to recognize a porn movie, how not to use the fax machine. And each one of these essays would ostensibly be about kind of useful advice that any person could uh, put to good use in improving their daily life. But actually, because he was a genius, he would quickly go off on a tangent that uh, was always startling, illuminating, and would bespeak one of his many, many uh, passions. You know, you mentioned that book being important to you. The book that he wrote that was the most important to me actually has a paper connection. And I, I only just realized this this morning. This is a book that came out originally in Italian in 2004, uh, its first English translation a year later. It's called The Mysterious Flame of Queen Loana. And this is, this is a book about an antiquarian book dealer who loses his memory due to a stroke. At the beginning of the novel, he can remember everything he's ever read, but doesn't remember anything else. And so he's able to retrace his life and kind of trigger his memory through looking through material. He looks through newspapers and books and magazines, even childhood comic books. And over time, the story is told in which he's able to recreate this, uh, this long autobiography, in a sense, by virtue of these things in his attic. And they're actually, in the book, exist as beautiful pieces of, of I mean, they're really, it's really illustrated. So the idea that a, that a writer would tell a story uh, and really uh, kind of mine the territory of the biography of a character through the evocation and the triggering of actual paper as the, as the sense memory thing that he needs to come back to square one again it is, I think, a, a kind of a beautiful story. And um, it's a great story for graphic designers. Great one. Uh, he notoriously had a gargantuan library at, at his house and in his office that, that he estimated had 50,000 volumes in them. And in um, How to Travel with the Salmon, there's a, uh, a piece called How to Justify a Private Library, which is actually um, how to come up with funny answers to questions you get all the time. And um, in, the, in this piece, uh, he says that anyone that walks in and sees his library almost always says, what a lot of books. Have you read them all? And I'm just going to read from this essay. It's just so funny. Uh, he says, at first I thought that the question characterized only people who had scant familiarity with books, people accustomed to seeing a couple of shelves with five paperback mysteries and a children's encyclopedia bought in installments. But experience taught me that the same words can also be uttered by people above suspicion. It could be said that there are still people who consider a bookshelf as a mere storage place for already read books and do not think 
think of the library as a working tool, but it is so much more to it than that. I believe that confronted by a vast array of books, anyone will be seized by the anguish of learning and will inevitably lapse into asking the question that expresses his torment and his remorse. And the answers <laughs> that he kind of would he would come up with different answers to have you read them all. And he said, uh, he would say, uh, he said, in the past, I adopted a tone of contemptuous sarcasm. I haven't read any of them. Otherwise, why would I keep them here? And then, and then, then people would say, well, what do you do with them after you read them? So, yeah, then, so then he started saying, um, have you read them all? Yes, all these and more, sir. Many, many more. And then, uh, then finally, at the end of his life, he was saying, no, these are just the ones I have to read by the end of the month. I keep the others in my office. And so he just had all these different answers. He was such a, uh, he brought such joy and could write so easily about everything, you know. And he was the anti-old fart, right? I mean, this oh, is totally, a guy who totally, was totally. so, I mean, he was so learned, right? His references are so, there's a wonderful uh, lecture that he gave in at Columbia University in uh, 1996 called From Internet to Gutenberg, uh, in which, you know, you realize that he, he makes this beautiful case for how the car doesn't mean the stagecoach goes away and images don't mean words goes away. And this is not going to kill that. I mean, he was a really equal opportunity employer when it came to words and pictures yeah. and books and magazines and teaching and writing and everything was sort of grist for the mill for him. He was totally um, the anti-old fart. And, you know, we live in this um, age of the listicle uh, as people who uh, maintain a website and who uh, consume that world with uh, real uh, enthusiasm. Uh, you know, this passion for lists is inescapable. And it also seems, again, oddly and sadly, like some sort of degradation of the way information should be consumed. But um, uh, Echo was like a real scholar of lists and loved them. The idea of the list in, in Echo's mind is, is one I think that I share. And he, he said that we make lists because we don't want to die. Now think about this, the idea that a list is a life or death mechanism. It's not that he took himself seriously or ever took the list seriously, but the idea of the inventory as something that provides order in a world of chaos is one that I think is, is quite intriguing. And uh, I've, I've taught projects on lists in my classes at Yale, and it's something I've thought about a lot, and, and I read his book on the inventory of lists. Uh, but I think really what it has to do with in terms of, of the life and death um, example is that it cements you to something that is uh, procedural. In other words, and, and, and designers, I think, love these things, right? So we love taxonomies. We love the A to Z. We love numbers. We love ways of creating structure and infrastructure, grids, systems, systems we can then explore and extrapolate from. Uh, and I think in a sense that's what lists are. When I was writing my book on scrapbooks, uh, one of the things that was so interesting to me was that I found historically that people started to keep scrapbooks long, long ago. And there was a surge in the needing to keep them in moments of uh, public panic. So, for example, during wartime. Uh, after the Civil War, after World War One, after World War II, and especially after 9-11. So moments in time where we felt that our vulnerability was being compromised, where fear was perhaps at a higher level. So people feel the need to cement to the page something that makes them feel less vulnerable, as if to say, you know, I'm here now, I may not be here tomorrow, so I'm going to make this list, I'm going to create something that actually shows that I was present, that I bore witness, that I mattered. And I think that he really believed that. 
he was able, being the historian and cultural scholar that he was, he was able to connect things to the Ten Commandments and to the Bible, but also at a very kind of menial level, the shopping list or uh, certificates or forms that we fill out, that all of these things, in a sense, frame our existence. And they're graphic representations in, in a larger sense, so that, you know, 100 years from now, we are those lists. If you look on any of these things like Ancestry.com, we look to find out more about people that came before us by virtue of who went on one ship and who voted in what election and what a census report was. So lists are really the, the practical roadmaps by which we live our lives. And I think that, that he was able to see that as a literary trope, as a cultural force, and as a kind of a human expression of culture is something that uh, I, I think was a very valuable contribution among his many other contributions uh, that will be long remembered. Yeah, and you wrote a, a lovely piece about lists yourself uh, on Design Observer that we'll provide a link to um, on our site that I think is uh, uh, well worth checking out as uh, an inadvertent, but I think an appropriate way of uh, paying a little homage to uh, Professor Echo. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed, including the exhibition at the Met on Matthias Buchinger and the beautiful catalog written by Ricky Jay that accompanies it. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters, with Debbie Millman. Our thanks to Mohawk Fine Papers for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.